Let's bow for prayer and uh, in the quietness of this moment as we get our hearts um, quiet before the Lord. I just want to give you just a moment uh, to pray, to ask God to speak to your heart today. Would you now pray for that one those ones that are sitting around you. Would you ask God to make it well with their soul? Uh, some people may need salvation. Some people may just need some encouragement in their life, questions answered in their life. Would you speak to them? Ask God to speak to them. Father, we do ask you to do wonders in our life today. God, I pray for uh, our country, I pray for our community, I pray for our church, and I pray for the ones sitting right here in the pews here at Cross Life. I pray, God, that you would do great things in our life so we can affect all of society and culture. In Jesus' name, we'll pray. Amen. Well, let's take our Bibles this morning. We want to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, and I'll give you about 30 minutes to find that. But... Um, you know, if you, for, for those of you who have uh, uh, an app or something on your phone, it should be a little easier for you. Just kind of scroll down. Others, uh, the table of contents really at the front of your Bible because it is kind of an obscure book a little bit. But we're going to begin a series of messages today on answering life's toughest, toughest questions. And what we did, we asked uh, you and also our community to go on our website and we asked them the question, if there's one thing that you would like to ask God, what would it be? And we've got a, a myriad of questions. Most of them uh, really are not a whole message. But uh, I can sort of group some of the things together. And so the next seven, eight, nine weeks, we're going to be looking at answering some of these major questions. Uh, and then I'm going to use my blog and also just maybe here in the service. I, I might just say, well, we're going to answer a question this morning uh, that came through our website. And it's going to be very simple. You know, how many angels can you fit on the head of a pen or, you know, um, one question, you know, does Adam have a navel or did he have one? Those kind of things that uh, you've always wondered about. And it would make a big change in your life if you knew. Uh, we're going to be looking at those. But uh, next week, you're going to want to bring a friend because next week we're going to be answering the question, why Christianity is right. That's a question that came straight uh, from, I mean, that was a straight question. That wasn't a group question. People were asking, with all the religions of the world, how do we know that Christianity is the right one? We're going to be looking at that next week. But this week, be looking at the meaning to life. What is the meaning to life, and is there a real meaning? There was a man by the name of Larry Walters who was um, living in Los Angeles, California, about 20 years ago. And he decided one day, as he was out on his lawn chair in the backyard, as he was there every Saturday, you know, drinking his uh, six-pack, of Coke, you know, and, uh, and, and uh, just sort of thinking about life in general. And he thought to himself, you know, if I tied some weather balloons onto my lawn chair, that would lift me up above the fences that are around me, and I could uh, see my neighbors, and I could wave to my neighbors. And man, what a, what a lark that would be. What a, what a fun thing that would be to do. And so not knowing much about science, he tied, true story, 45 weather balloons onto his lawn chair. 
and he was tied down with ropes, and when his neighbors, as they all gathered around, cut the ropes, he took off like a jet plane and reached 11,000 feet in the air. And all he had on him was a BB gun, but he was too frozen to even use it. And so they, uh, this is a true story. In fact, they had to uh, shut down the airport, LAX. They had to shut it down because he was hoving around the whole city. And so finally when they got him down, don't ask me how because uh, the article didn't say that. Uh, tell me how. But once they got him down, the reporters were there. It was a big thing in L.A. And the reporters were there and they asked him two questions. Number one, were you scared? And, he, of course, he said, yes. And the second question is, why did you do it? And the answer was, well, you just can't sit there. And maybe that's what you're wondering. Can you really just sit there? Is there any real reason and meaning to this thing we call life? As we look at the book of Ecclesiastes in the first chapter, uh, the Bible teaches, in fact, some of you may be wondering why this book is even in here. In fact, let me give you a reason why you might ask that question, because I'm going to start reading in verse 1. It says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does a man have in all of his work, which he does under the sun? A generation co goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place it rises there again, blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along. And on its circular courses the wind returns, and the rivers flow into the sea, and the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, they will flow again. All things are wearisome, man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has, which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see, this is new. Already he has existed, it has existed in age, for ages which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things, and also the later things which will occur. There will be, uh, be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. Verse 18, because in much wisdom there is much grief and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. The whole book's like this. You think, man, why, why in the world do they even put something that depressing in the Bible? Well, because it's real. This is a real guy, real man, going through real problems and soul-searching in his life. The man's name was Solomon. We know that it's Solomon, even though his name's not in there, because of verse 1. The words of the preacher, the, which the word preacher means really a philosopher. It's not a, like a preacher like you would think of. Someone that, that's sitting around leading a seminar in some kind of, let's ask the question, what's life all about? And so he says, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Now, there's only, there's a lot of sons of David, and just because somebody, the Bible says, is the son of David, it could be the grandson, great-grandson, it could have been a myriad, he had a lot of kids, a lot of sons. Why Solomon? Because he's the only son of David that reigned, that was a king that reigned in Jerusalem. Solomon's son did not reign in Jerusalem because the kingdom split. So we know that it was Solomon, and it's significant that we know that because the Bible calls him the wisest man that ever lived. So let's learn from the wisest man that ever lived because this book is filled with questions, very few answers. So as we look at this, I want us to see, verse 2, we can see vanity of vanities. That's one of the key phrases in the book. Then in verse 3, it says, under the sun. Another key phrase. The third one 
has to do with striving after the wind that we'll read in verse 14 uh, and many other places in the book. These three phrases occur over and over and over and over in the book. Verse 3 is the key question. What advantage does man have in all of his work, which he does under the sun? What do you do it for? What advantage? What profit? Why do you even do it? Why bother, he says. And so we're going to be looking at this list in three things. Number one, first of all, I want us to see the struggle for meaning that we have. Secondly, the source. And thirdly, the seizing, uh, seizing of that. First of all, let's look in verse 2. As we look, basically at the struggle, there's a need, and then there's a search that Solomon goes through it. Verse 2, vanity of vanity, all is vain, all is futile, says the preacher, says the philosopher, all is futile. And he says, basically, without a meaning in life, everything that we do has no meaning. He says in verse 4, he says, if you think you're going to have a legacy, generations come, generations go. Verse 11, you'll not even be remembered. He says in verse 5, our time comes, our time goes. How are you going to use, oh, I'm investing my time. What's the point? It comes and it goes. He says in verses 6 and 7, nature just takes its course. The rivers flow into the oceans. Oceans are never full. What's the point to it all? Finally, he says in verse 14, I have seen all the works which you have done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, striving after the wind, beating against the wind. Just striving and striving and striving, spending all your life in stress and anxiety. What for? Well, we look and we find that Solomon pretty much experienced anything, everything. And this is, so, again, so important that we realize who's talking here. Here was a guy who did it all. He was the richest man of his day and also called the wisest man ever to live, according to the Bible. And, of course, Jesus would be the exception to that because he's God. But nevertheless, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. Here's what he says. Look, I've tried pleasure. You think you're going to get a lot? Some people think, well, if I can just have a little more vacation time, if I can just own that cabin in the hills, if I can just have that beach condo, if I can just travel the world and, and really go to Europe and just enjoy myself, if I could just do that, then I'd find meaning to life. But he says in chapter 2, verse 1, I said to myself, now, come now. I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. Just have a good time. And behold, it too was futility. Here is a man that did that. He's speaking from authority. He's speaking of one with experience. He said, I've been there, done that, doesn't work. Then he, somebody says, well, you know, if I just work, I'm going to really, you know, man is what a man does. I've heard that phrase. If I just work hard enough, I'll be successful, and then I'll really feel like somebody. Well, he says in verse 4, I enlarged my works, I built houses for myself, I planted vineyards for myself, I made gardens and parks for myself, and he all goes through this. And finally in verse 11, thus I considered all the activities which my hands had done and the labor which I exerted, and behold, all was vanity, striving after the wind, and there's no profit under the sun. No profit on this earth. No profit in horizontal living. Somebody else says, well, if I just had enough money. That's the problem. I don't have enough money. Chapter 5, verse 10, as well as chapter 1, verses 13 and following, he talks about the wealth and seeking after the wealth. Did you know in today's dollars, the temple was a $400 billion building? Not only that, but he overtaxed everybody in order to gain wealth for himself. 
So God was not only blessing him, but he was blessing himself. He just could not get enough. And the final analysis, chapter 5 and verse 10, he says, wealth, money, it's just vanity. Vanity is vanity. It's chasing after the wind. Someone else says, well, if I can just be smart enough. I want to be the smartest guy in the room. And he saw it through intellect as well. We can look at it in verses uh, 12 in chapter 2 and following. So I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will a man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? He says, look, I, I can learn, I can learn, I can learn. And he goes on to say in this passage, that too is just futile, it's vanity. And then he finally tried apathy. He says, who cares? No meaning. My meaning to life is just not caring, just living the way I want to live overall. And finally, he just comes to the point of saying, this is my last try, and this too, in chapter 2, verse 21 through 23, this too is vanity. It's futile. Now, what about us today? What about some of the philosophies, the modern searches for um, answers from the philosophers of life? Let me give you three that I think kind of group things together. One, of course, is uh, you've heard of this one probably before, humanism. That's put puts man, not God, at the center of the universe. The problem with that is, of course, man comes, man goes. Look at verse 4. A generation goes and a generation uh, comes, but the earth remains forever. He says men come, men go. Now, the humanist said, I'm going to make a difference in this world. You know, there is no meaning to life. There, you've come from nothing. There is no design. You're not going anywhere, but in between... Now, there's some real meaning, and I'm going to make a difference in this life. And the philosopher here in Ecclesiastes asked the question, what for? Why would you want to do that? You see, the humanist is sort of a, a part of naturalism. Naturalism is a philosophy that says, you know, that, that man, not God, is at the center of the universe, but also everything's from nature. And so a naturalist would believe in the evolutionary process. We just came from the molecules. And C.S. Lewis said it best, if, if we had, we were just coming from molecules, then what's the purpose? What's the reason? I mean, even love. You know, somebody says, well, I'm going to, I really love this person. Why? Well, I don't know. Their molecules just sort of came together at the right, right time, right shape. Can you imagine going up to a girl and say, wow, you know, boy, Mother Nature really threw away the mold when she put together your molecules. How you doing, you know? But what we think that, oh, this baby in my arms, I mean, this is so precious. The molecules and the germs and everything are coming together in such a way that I really feel love. And what the humanist <clears throat> and even the hedonist that we'll get to in just a moment, what they're saying is, is that it's just all in your head anyway. There is no real purpose to it all. And somebody says, well, no, I, I'm going to invest in this life, in people in this life. Well, then let me ask you something. And he asked in verse 4, people come, people go. A generation comes, a generation goes. How many of you really remember your great-grandparents? Don't raise your hand. But how many of you remember? Now, they're your relatives. They came, they have invested down through the generations. They have affected your life. But we don't even remember them. We don't. And what about... Forgive me for not being able to pronounce this correctly, but uh, uh, the movie and play uh, Les Miserables, is that right? Misery? You know, the first hour somebody says, that's right, and somebody else says, that's wrong. My point exactly. Okay? Anyway, in this movie, 
if you remember the scene, if, you know, because I, you know, I had the, uh, when I was drugged, I mean, not drugged there, but when I, when I had the privilege of seeing this movie with my wife, um, you know, it's a musical, and so they, they were on this, uh, uh, they built up a lot of stuff, and armies were coming in, they were going to get killed, and they knew they were going to die, and they got up on top of all the rubble that they put together for a blockade, and you know what they began to do, of course, you're about ready to die, what are you going to do? I'm going to sing, you know? <laughs> And they started singing a song. And this song asked the question, they asked the question, is anyone going to remember me when I fall? And the philosopher would say, no, they will not remember you. And so you think to yourself, well, then what, what is it all about? And the environmentalist will say, says, I want to save the environment. Okay, what for? You know, the earth according to the second law of thermodynamics, is dying off anyway. And so if there's no meaning to it all, well, I'm saving the environment to save people so we can save the planet for long term. But the point is, why? What for? It reminds me of a plane going down, and all four engines are about to go out, and one engine goes out, and two, and then three, and then four. And finally somebody says, engine, three, engine four just caught on fire. Somebody help me, help me. Everybody get together and save engine four. And somebody says, well, that, is that going to save the plane? No, but we'll go down three minutes later. Think about it. What's it all about? The second thing is hedonism. Just enjoy the pleasures of life. Look, you're, you're only here for a season. Just enjoy it. And that doesn't have to all be bad stuff either. You know, enjoy your family, enjoy your play, enjoy your work, enjoy the things of life that you have going on, even though all of your molecules are just kind of random to it all. But the, but, but the philosopher says, all things are wearisome, verse 8. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. He's simply saying, no matter how much pleasure you seek in life, your eyes will never be full. Your ears will never be full. Your desires will never be full. It's kind of all for nothing. And then notice existentialism would probably be the, the really the third thing that we, we are about here. Sartre, Nietzsche, basically life is meaningless, but I will be noble. I'm going to do good in this life. There's a lady that uh, reported that went to a third world country and she noticed how women were treated. Now, being an existentialist herself and a humanist, she believed that all truth is relative. Therefore, you cannot pass your values onto someone else. You cannot call anything evil. But she caught herself as she was walking through the village. She went to the chief and she said, you know, I'm really disturbed about how you treat the women here in the village. And he looked at her and she, he said, do not pass your Western values on me and my village. And she says, I'm sorry, you're right. I have no right to judge because your truth is true for you and my truth is truth for me. She got back to the state. She could, she could not get out the whole thing out of her mind. And so she decided this, and she wrote about it. She said, look, I know that I'm wrong. I know that there's, that there's no reason for me to have pass my values onto someone else, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to do it anyway. And the existentialist says, look, 
I know that there's no meaning, but I'm pretend that there is a meaning, a nobility. R.D. Lang has said that in order to have meaning in life, you must be out of touch with reality. You must be insane. In uh, the play, the book, the movie, I saw the movie back when I was in college called Man of La Mancha. And I was unfamiliar with the story, so I did not feel like it was a, a movie that I'd want to see a second time. But this crazy knight was around on his horse, always falling off, and, and uh, he came into a world. There were no knights. There's no chivalry, no nobility. But he was pretending that there was. And he even treated the lady of his life with great chivalry. And they, they told him, that <clears throat> all of these things are not here. He says, yes, but I'm saying in my life they are. He said, you're insane. And the answer was, yes, but my insanity is my meaning in life. Birth has no meaning. Death has no meaning. But in between, I'm going to make it so. Bertrand Russell, the... Um, atheist philosopher said this way, without God, life has no meaning. Now you would say, now wait a minute, he's an atheist. Yes, he believed that life, God was not there, life had no meaning, and without God, life has no meaning. John Piper tells a story of a life-changing experience he had when he was um, a young man, a young boy. He walks into his, um, his dad's church, the sanctuary, small church, his dad was pastor, looking for his dad. And he came upon his dad <coughs> ministering to an elderly gentleman. <coughs> excuse, excuse me, an elderly gentleman. And he came upon him, and he walked into the room, not meaning to eavesdrop. And he heard the man yell out, I've wasted it. I've wasted, I've wasted it. I've wasted my life. Now, my question to him is, how do you know? How do you know? If, there, if you don't know the meaning to life, the reason for life, then how do you know you've wasted it? Well, I'd like to say the book of Ecclesiastes gives us answers, but it does not. We leave the book of Ecclesiastes, and uh, he comes to a conclusion that we'll look at in just a moment, but it doesn't mean that much because Christ has not come. He's still searching. He's still wondering. His life, his faith is frazzled. But the New Testament does give us an answer. And the reason I come to this verse is because of a key word in the verse. The key word has to do with philosophy. And by the time the New Testament times came around, philosophers, Greek philosophers that sat around in Athens, they were, they were frustrated. They, did, they couldn't find the reason for life. That was the question. What is the logos? The logos, the, the, the reason for life. And so John said this in his gospel, first verse. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, this, the, the word word in the Greek, in this verse, is the word logos. And just tr simply translating it word does not give it its full meaning. What John was saying as he was approaching the intellectuals of his day, he said, I have found the logos, which means the reason 
for life. I have found the reason for life. And he was in the beginning. And it's not in a philosophy. It is not in a theology. It is in a person. The person of Jesus Christ. John 1.14, right after, just 12, 13 verses down. It says, and the word, the logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. The reason for life became flesh and dwelt among us. And we, and we saw his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It's just like Solomon was saying, striving after the wind. There's, there's nothing under the sun, just striving after the wind. And if it's not under the sun, it's above the sun. And John is saying, I found the reason for life. It's in a person, and it's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus Christ, the one who reveals the Father. In fact, in verse, uh, in verse 18 of chapter 1, it says this to us. If I can just uh, uh, beg your indulgence just for a moment. No one has seen God at any time. That's what it says. Except the only begotten of God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Who is it talking about? It's talking about in this whole chapter, the Word. The reason for life, Jesus Christ has revealed the Father to us. The Bible says in John 17, he's come to glorify the Father. And he's the answer <clears throat> to the greatest questions of life. What, what are the same questions you've heard all your life? How many books have been written on three questions? Who am I? What am I here for? Where am I going? So who are you? As a Christian believer, as someone who has the Holy Spirit of God living in their heart, you are an adopted child of God that will live for eternity with Jesus in heaven. Who are you? You are in Christ. What are you here for? To glorify God that we'll get to in just a minute. Where are you going? Jesus gave the answer. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you into myself that where I am, there you may be also. The reason for life gives us the answers to life. And it's found in the person of Jesus Christ. He takes away the negative, the sin in our life as we get forgiveness. And he gives us the positive, the God in us that we've been talking about the last five or six weeks and another in the last series. The Bible says we need to receive him. Jesus said, I am the way, John 14, 6. Right after those verses about heaven, he says this. Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. We don't know the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the road to heaven. I am the truth. The truth will always set you free. And I am the life. And the Bible says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, Colossians 2, 6, so walk you in him. How do you, glorify, how, how do you walk with God? How do you get the most out of the reason for life? How does the reason of life become your reason for life? By receiving him into our heart and forgetting the horizontal living for just a moment and go with the vertical living. Having a relationship with God. Now, how do we seize all this? How do we get it? How do we really get it? I want you to notice at the book, uh, end of the book of Ecclesiastes, he just simply says this. The conclusion when all has been heard is fear God Keep his commandments because this applies to every person. He says, I don't know. 
I just don't know. But he gives us a hint here about fearing God, about knowing the awesomeness of God. I think that if we were going to take the Bible and put it into a capsule, and though I'm not Presbyterian, the Westminster Shorter Catechism really gives us the answers that we need. It says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Two things, glorify God, enjoy him forever. Philippians 1, 20 and 21, says, Paul said this, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not put to shame in anything, but, all, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted, be glorified. That's what it means, be glorified in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Revelation says, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The glory and blessing in every creature, every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and the things in them. I, I heard saying in heaven to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and forever. How do we do this? How do we bring glory to God? How did Jesus in his last days in John chapter 17, when he was praying to God and praying for the disciples, he said, Father, I have glorified you here on this earth. And I will continue to do that as he was about to die on the cross. I pray these will glorify God. What does that mean? The word glory among many definitions means to magnify. It's like putting in a telescope and you look into, in, at the moon at the telescope, and the moon seems to draw closer. It seems to be bigger. It seems to, to be more its natural size, even though it's not. You could never put the natural size of the moon in your telescope. But it, it makes it appear more like its size. It draws closer to us through that telescope. And the Bible teaches us that that's how we glorify God. We Glorify God by, tell, by living such a way in this life as we walk with him that we're like looking into a telescope and we bring Christ closer to the rest of the world. We make him look more like his size, though we could never make him look big enough. How do we glorify the Lord? We make him look bigger to the rest of the world. Why? The rest of the world looks at us and says, wow, must be something about this Jesus stuff about this Christ stuff, because look at Cross Life Church. Look how they're living. Look at their members and look how they're living. Look at the victory in their life. And so we bring glory to God by drawing people, making people thirsty, as it were, for Jesus Christ and what they can have. Then it says also that you and I need to enjoy the Lord. I would ask you today, are you glorifying the Lord? I think all of us could answer, many of us could answer, I think to a certain point, certain extent, I am. But boy, I don't know if I'm all in. But then I want to ask you here in America, as we have so many expectations of how our life ought to go, all the opportunities that we have facing us, all the wonderful things that we have, let me ask you, are you really taking time to enjoy the Lord? Or is life filled with stress and anxiety? See, God created us to have a relationship with him. 
And he wants us to enjoy him in worship, as you did this morning, to worship in our normal daily life. Boy, you know, when we get to heaven, we're going to be complete. But sometimes God just simply wants us to look to him and say, God, I, I want to go deeper in my worship, but there, I don't feel like there's any place else to go. And there's not, maybe, on this earth. Prayer and, and Bible. You know, one of the things about, I know I, I preach about the, teach about the Bible all the time, teach the Bible, but I teach about how much we need to love it and read it. Listen, the Bible changed my life. Reading the Bible for myself just simply changed my life. We walk with God as we hear his words and read his words in our heart. And then working for him. You know, God wants you to glorify him by using your spiritual gifts and your talents for him. But what happens when we work with God? See, we just don't work for God. We work with God because the Holy Spirit of God lives within us. I, was, I remember the, uh, a couple months ago, and we're going to do this again, I think next month or, or I guess in the first of November, a community day when we go out and we, we pick out five or six schools and we go and just do everything that we can for them as far as what they ask for. Last time we put down mulch, we um, uh, uh, pressure washed driveways, we painted, did all this kind of stuff. And the group that I worked with, at the end of the day, I felt closer to them. I worked with them. I knew, I knew them by name. But sitting, standing there and working next to them, oh, the next time I saw them, I felt closer to them. We just talked. You know, When you work with God, you work with him. As the Spirit of God works in you, and you feel closer. Remember the story about the blind man? And Jesus took the, the dirt from the ground, and he spit on it, rubbed it together, placed it on the man's eyes, and then he could see again. He was healed. Dirt representing man, the spit of God, the breath of God representing the Lord. The Lord and man working together to pull off great things on earth. That's how we enjoy him. His fellowship. We're built for that relationship. Built for that fellowship. But the key is really, it's kind of, I need to be all in. Ed Young Sr. tells a story or gives the example of being um, in an airport. And he had, had to think to himself as he lost his luggage one day. He said, suppose you went up to a, um, say somebody at Delta or Southwest, and say Southwest, and um, you, you went up to the, uh, the counter and said, I've lost my luggage. Wow, did you check it in on our flight? Well, no. Well, did you carry it on our flight? Well, no. Well, where'd you lose it? Somewhere in the airport. You're talking to the wrong person. You need to talk to security, you know, at that point. But the point is, if you'd have said, no, I checked it in, they would do everything they can they could to find that piece of luggage. Why? Because you committed the luggage to them. When you and I are committed in our heart to God, he's going to pull off everything knowing that he is also committed to you. I've wasted it. I've wasted my life. How do you know? How do you know? You've wasted it if you've not been all in with Jesus Christ. But you don't have to waste anymore. I love the little story about chariots of fire. Maybe I saw many years ago. Christian-based. And it was a story about the 1924 Olympics in Paris. Eric Liddell uh, 
ran a race. It was a story really more about him than it was about uh, the other uh, fellow in the movie, Harold Abrahams. But really, it's, it's a contrast of two different lives. One guy that was following the Lord, Eric Liddell, and one that was, was just not. He was living for those Olympics, living for that, that gold medal. Eric Liddell was going to be a, a missionary in China. His life belonged to the Lord. And it came that he could not race. He, he felt his own conviction. He couldn't race on Sunday. And so he had to give up his best race, but someone else stepped out of the way and allowed him to run another race, and he did win a gold medal. But also in that same movie, in the same Olympics, true story, Harold Abrahams won his gold medal. And afterwards, he was in the locker room with his trainer, looking off into space. And he said these words, I'm 24 years old. This is right after the gold medal ceremony. I'm 24 years old. I have never known contentment. I'm forever in pursuit. I don't know what I'm chasing. Do you feel that way? That's the way Solomon felt. I'm just keep on chasing the wind, striving after the wind instead of enjoying, glorifying and enjoying my creator through Jesus Christ. So the real question here is twofold today. One, as, as a believer, are you really all in? Are you really trusting him? Are you spending time with the one that wants to spend time with you? But the second question is, if you're not a believer today, don't you agree without God, there is no meaning? And without Christ, the Bible teaches us we cannot know God. Why don't you know him? Come to know him today. With heads bowed and eyes closed. This morning, those are the two questions. Let me ask the second one first. Because if you've never received Christ into your heart, I want to give you that opportunity today. I, I don't want to go to a service like this with so many people here without giving an opportunity for you to come to know Jesus. And it's so simple. In fact, you say, well, that, that couldn't be right. No, it's easy and simple because the child needs to understand it. Jesus died for you on the cross because of your sins. You need forgiveness for your sins through the cross of Christ. And the Bible says, as many as received him, to them gave you the power to become the children of God. Would you receive him today by praying this simple prayer with me silently as I pray aloud? Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for going to the cross and dying there for my sins. I open up the door of my heart and I ask you to come in. I want to have meaning and purpose in my life. And I pray, God, that you would give me assurance and peace in my heart and forgiveness of sin by praying this prayer right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer with me, I want to invite you to take this little card, and on the back it says, My decision today. I've decided to surrender my life to Jesus Christ. If you prayed that prayer, You've made that decision. Put a little check in that box. Make sure we get enough info, contact information on the front of the card. And in just a few moments, when we pass the offering plate, I want you to just put this in the offering plate, your card, so we'll have a record 
of your decision for Christ. And we'll get some literature to you. And you may be saying, hey, I want to talk to somebody in person. And that's why we have these two gentlemen standing right here before you, two of our staff guys, middle school guy or high school guy. And I'm here as well. We're going to sing a song of invitation. If you prayed that prayer to receive Christ and said, I'd like, I'd like somebody to pray with me right now, you come. The altar is open. You say, I, I need to pray for myself. I need to pray for somebody. I want to be all in for Jesus. I don't want to miss my purpose in life. I don't want to miss that meaning. You come to the altar right now and you pray. And as we do that right now, the band's going to lead us. Let's all stand together. The altar is open right now for prayer. You need someone to be praying. You need to pray for someone. They're here. They're not here. But your heart just goes out to them. There's an atheist that you know. There's someone that's struggling in their faith that you're aware of and you need to be praying for them. You're struggling yourself. You've been disappointed with God. You've been disillusioned by the Christian life and by the church and you need prayer. You come. You pray to receive Christ. You come and take one of these gentlemen by the hand and just say, I prayed that prayer with the pastor. I prayed it with him. And we'll help you grow in the Lord. Right now, as we sing, as we sing, you come.